turn my mic on and then you'll be able to hear me. Yeah, good stuff. We're ready. We are fired up about Fight Club starting tonight. That's at 10 o'clock, 10-week challenge for men. Uh, We've been talking a little bit about that and we want to blast that off and um, we're We've got more men signed up as of yesterday than we've ever had preceding a fight club. So we're really going to, looks like we're going to rock the house tonight. So we're really excited about that. And, uh, and this is only for men. And we have great men here at Grace. Actually, and those are men who actually believe there's still a difference between men and women. These are the kind of men uh, that come to something like this. And uh, we're excited about tonight. And this is for, for all of us men. Uh, it gives us an opportunity uh, to be challenged in several areas of our life so that we will grow closer to Christ. The Bible calls this discipleship, by the way, and I believe this is the best discipleship tool for men that I've ever seen. We expect to have 250, maybe 300 men tonight and don't miss this opportunity. Now, coming tonight, guys, doesn't obligate you. If you're kind of wondering, what is this thing? Not sure I want to be a part of this. Well, we're going to explain a little bit more. Again, that's a 10 o'clock meeting tonight. Uh, and then we'll, we'll also have meat there. You know how when we get together with men, we have meat. So there'll be meat. And we want you to, to come into that. And, and I know not every guy needs Fight Club. I mean, some men have a close relationship with God. Uh, They are in his word daily. They have a vibrant prayer life. They keep themselves healthy for their family, and they're all about serving others. And so if, if that's you, maybe, maybe you don't need Fight Club, but Fight Club needs you. And so we want you to, to be there uh, we're going to have a great time together, and it all kicks off at 10, 10 o'clock. You know, no cost. It's 10 weeks. Uh, there are some challenges. Again, discipleship for men. And, and here's, here's the thing, guys. Men, sometimes we need to be challenged to do hard things. And tonight, 10 o'clock. Hope to see you there. Um, one more thing, before, uh, just off of what Brandon said earlier in the service, we, we talked about, he mentioned that we were talking about doing maybe a kids camp this summer. And I, see, I say maybe because he, here's the deal, here's what he was saying at the end. We're actually trying to figure out if we have the volunteers. Uh, the main thing we do here at Grace is, is our Sunday morning, that's the main driver of pointing people to God. And then that's also the main driver in our children's ministry, although we have children's ministry on Wednesday night. And then as far as the youth, the main driver is Wednesday night, although they also have some programming on Sunday morning. But just keeping up with the challenge of kids' ministry in those different segments is already a challenge for Amy, and we don't want to add any more stress to her. So for months, we've been planning a kids' camp during the summer, been talking about it for, for a lot of months, been planning this one for a few months, but we're actually only going to do it if enough people volunteer to help out before the end of March. 
And so at the end of March, we'll make a decision. Are we going forward with this this year? Or are we going to just maybe hold, wait till next year, maybe tie that into our new uh, children's space and, and do it that way? So that'll all depend on you. But uh, just be thinking about that. If that's something you would consider or something you want, uh, maybe you want to help us out. The last, last week, we started a series, just a two-week series called The Counselor. And what we're talking about is Paul writes to, to a church, and it's a great church. They're knocking it out of the park. Paul's impressed with them. And at the end of his letter, he basically gives them some instructions about how they should counsel each other within the church. And so he's basically saying that this counsel between brothers and sisters of Christ in the church consisted of uh, three instructions to three different groups of people, and it started with warn the idle or the rebellious, or some people combine that, the unruly. Uh, so warn the rebellious or the, the idle or lazy. Warn them is the first instruction that he gets, gives there. And then secondly, second group of people, he says, encourage the faint-hearted or the small-souled encourage them, sort of build them up, and then also help, third, help the weak. Help the weak, and this would include and maybe even primarily refer to the spiritually weak. So this is how we counsel each other in the church family as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's, that's what he's telling us, and we should do these things, he told us, with patience and a desire to help our fellow believer. And so now Paul turns from how we counsel each other to basically how we should counsel ourselves to follow God. And he basically says, hey, what does that mean? Well, when we desire to do God's will, when we're trying to figure out that, he's given us counsel that we can just automatically apply to ourselves to do God's will. And this comes up a lot. I mean, we're faced with choices every day. And the choice for a believer is always, is there one of the, it could be that the choices are neutral morally. But, but every choice, we need to look at that and say, does this honor God or not honor God? Does this bring me closer to God or further from God? We need to look at all those things so we can experience God's will. And so when we have those kinds of choices, a lot of times we're wondering, what is God's will for my life? What does God want from me? Uh, whether it's a key decision or just all the decisions you, you face in a typical day. And so basically, Paul now shifts this in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 5, and he shifts it to how we counsel ourselves. And there are, he starts off in this passage with three quick but powerful instructions. Here's what he says. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 15. First of all, rejoice always. Rejoice always. He continues, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. 
So this is the passage that we want to go a little deeper, unpack a little bit this morning about what God's communicating to us in this. And basically in this passage, we notice that he gives us three do's and then he gives us some don'ts. And so now we're going to talk about here. Here are God's do's for us in this passage, the triad, if you will, or the trilogy of God's will, three things that he's telling us. This, these three things, this trilogy triad, this is not the totality of God's will in our life. This is part of God's will for us every single day, what we should always do. And it starts this way, if you didn't catch it. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And then he wraps that part with, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So first of all, rejoice always. Always. Rejoice always. How many of you, how many of you have memorized scripture? Like there's verses that you can memorize that you can quote. Yeah, okay, got that. How many how many of you memorize scripture now? It's kind of part of what you try to do. How many of you, you know, like the idea of memorizing scripture, but you've kind of memorized things and then you've forgotten those things, and so it kind of, you know, and then that you sort of lose your focus. Maybe that's a better category. Is that true of anybody, you know, or just kind of there? All right, well, I'm gonna help you this morning because we're gonna memorize a verse. Are we ready? We we can do this. I'm telling you, you can do this. All right, here's the verse. Rejoice always. That's the whole verse. All right, so let's let's say it together. All right, that's 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Revert, rejoice. See, I already messed it up. This is the problem with memorizing. Rejoice always. I think we got that. Joy is huge in the Christian life. Rejoice always. Now, here's the deal. Some of you know, and I can tell you, rejoice always. We're looking at what does that mean, rejoice always? You know, well, after seven years of graduate study, in seminary, and part of that being Greek and Hebrew. I can tell you definitively what that means. Rejoice always means rejoice always. That's all it means. I mean, there, I just saved you seven years of graduate study right there. You can flip it, always rejoice. Rejoice always. That's what he's talking about. That's what God wants in our lives rejoice always. And we're thinking, whoa, how can that be? Joy is huge, huge in the Christian life. As I said, it's crucial for a dynamic, powerful, engaging Christian testimony, the joy in our life. Joy in our life is like light that draws unbelievers toward wanting to know more about Christ. Now, the way we have that joy, and really this applies to all three of these things that we're going to look at, the do's, this triad. The way we, the way we experience that is, it's different than the way that the world lives. It's different than the way we would naturally live out our life. Because typically, here's how we spend our days as human beings. We get up, we're busy, we got things to do, we've got 
Uh, we're spinning the plates. We got pans in the fire. Things have to get done. And then we start, you know, we got this task at Apazoo. We run into this person, this person. And then our day becomes how, how much joy we have in our day. What's our joy factor? Our joy factor is dependent on all these external circumstances and all these different people that we bounce off of in our life. It's like we're a ping pong ball just being paddled around and we're going all these different directions depending on all these external issues in our life. Or if you know the old time pinball machines, it's like that where the pinball is just banging off of everything. That's how naturally we live the Christian life. But God's telling us our, the Christian life shouldn't be motivated by the exterior. It should be motivated by the interior, that we have the Holy Spirit inside our lives. And then he brings us these things. It's in Christ, through the Spirit, that we can experience joy and a vibrant prayer life and gratitude and thanksgiving. That's what Scripture's teaching us. And if we master this triad of just joy, prayer, and gratitude, we'll stop bouncing off of every circumstance. There's a, a word for this in psychological uh, field called the locus of control, meaning, you know, what's controlling you? Is it all the exterior things? Well, Christians, by definition, because we have the Holy Spirit in our life, we should be operating on an internal locus of control, meaning we're not just reacting to everything and every little circumstance or person that we bump into determines how our joy will be. It should be that our joy is coming from what's inside in spite of what we're bouncing against in life. Does that make sense? That's what God is calling us to. And so... The big question that everybody has is, well, hold it now. Rejoice always. Have joy all the time. Well, how do you do that in hardship? How do you do that in grief? How do you do that when, when things are happening you know, that, that are negative? And again, it's this internal locus of control. As Christians, we don't ignore adversity. We don't pretend that it's not there. But we live on a different plane. We live on a different level because of something inside of us, because of him who is inside of us. And so even then, in the middle of the agonizing situations, we experience the presence of God. And we know that there, there is a God who exists and that he cares about us and that he wants the best for us. And so the Holy Spirit infuses joy into our lives and the joy of knowing Him. Now, what's amazing here, because a lot of times we think, sometimes we get the impression that the Bible sort of drifts from reality a little bit, like this doesn't exactly apply to my life because life's messier than the way it was in the Bible in the first century. Well, that's just simply not true. Remember the context of the Thessalonica church. We actually went through a series, First and Second Thessalonians, we call it Living in Light and Jesus' Return. And you might remember that just a few months ago, because we talked about the context of what was happening. Remember, Paul crossed in to Europe. He went to Philippi, then he went to Thessalonica. 
But then after he was there, we hear some people started believing, started preaching in the synagogue. Some Jewish people started believing. Some Gentile people started believing. Some uh, prominent business women in the community started believing. Those three groups of people that we know started believing there in Thessalonica. But then as the gospel got traction, all of a sudden there were, was opposition and things got really dicey and persecution broke out. And it was worse for Paul because he's an outsider. So the church actually smuggled Paul out of there, but then they were left to face with the persecution. And now here, Paul, who has heard back from Timothy and knows that they're thriving, that they've survived, he's writing them, rejoice always. And we're going, wow, they're in persecution. They're being persecuted as Paul is writing that, rejoice always. And I think sometimes we can hear that and say, that almost sounds a little harsh. But it's not when we see Paul's life. Because Paul modeled this. Paul lived this out where he had joy no matter what was going on. It showed up in his life. And it seems paradoxical. Joy in hardship. But it's exactly what Paul displayed over and over. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But here's the question for us, just the practical question. Do you have joy in your life? Are you joyful? And if you are, does anybody else know it? I mean, does it show up in your life where outsiders can point and say, yeah, he's a pretty joyful guy, or yeah, she is joyful all the time? Because that's how God wants us to live. That's not just some unattainable thing out there. That's the practical expectation of being a believer. By the way, in history, to put a historical context on this, no other religion in the first century is saying, hey, live a joyful life. This is completely new in the area of religion or spirituality that we should live joyfully. It's unique with Christianity in the first century. And so now the second, that's one thing, and, and we memorized a verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, which is, and you guys are on it. It's, it's just been a few minutes. You memorized a verse. All right, we're going to the second one. The second instruction that's part of God's will for every believer is pray without ceasing. Okay, now, the first verse you memorized had two words. We're going to step it up a notch because now this verse has three words. Okay, are you ready? So pray without ceasing. Ready? Pray without ceasing. Boom! First Thessalonians 5, 17. 16 and 17. You got two verses right there. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. You're killing it in here. You're doing great. Pray without ceasing. Think about this. Paul's not throwing out to us an impossible command. He doesn't mean that pray without ceasing means that you're just always praying like you can't sleep because you got to pray and you can't concentrate on anything else because God wants, you know, he's already told these people in this book, you need to work hard. So he's, this is not an impossible command. We take this language and interpret it normally. And here's, he's not saying we should, we should forever be an uninterrupted prayer. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. He's saying Christians should always be 
in the habit of prayer. That's one of the things he's saying. We should always be in the habit of prayer. We should never in our life start as believers forsaking prayer, not making it a vibrant part of our life. We should never stop praying. We should also be persistent in our prayer. That's what Jesus taught us. Be persistent in our prayer. Keep going, keep going, always ready to pray. And we should be active and spontaneous in our prayer life. I know a lot of us, we set aside one time a day or maybe a couple times a day or, or whatever, um, where we try to get alone and focus on our communication with God that we're praying. And so we do that. So some people do that in the morning, in the evening, throughout the day. Sometimes we do it more than once a day. But we, we carve out time on our schedule where we have a meeting with God. We pray. But, and that's good. That's what Jesus did. So that's great stuff. But our prayer life should not be limited to that. We should also be in the habit of continuously and spontaneously praying throughout the day. And, and I know a bunch of you do that, you know, a bunch of us do that. Before you go into the meeting, you know, before you interact with somebody else, before this, before that, that you're praying to God, God, you know, give me wisdom, make sure I say this right, Maybe, make sure I represent you well while, we, while we're in this meeting that has nothing, you know, to do with church or anything else. We should be praying those things. I know a lot of you do that. But when we look at prayer this way, what would be surprising in the first century is that prayer, all the pagan prayer that, that, the Thessalo- that the people living in Thessalonica would have thought about before this, before they became believers, it, that's a quid pro quo type prayer. It's, God, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Christian prayer is nothing like that. Christian prayer is based on that we know that we have a heavenly father, and he's described more than any other way as father in the New Testament, that we have this connection. It's a relational kind of a, a, a term. Knowing that God's our father, our heavenly father, who loves us, and who wants to give his children good gifts. But what's best for us is always what God says his will is. So I think sometimes we can kind of get off track by praying for things that the world says is good rather than what God says is good. But God wants to give us what's truly best for us. So rejoice always, pray without, all right, and then we'll just do the first half of the next verse, and that's only four words, all right? In everything, give thanks. Let's hear you say it. Two and a half verses under your belt right there. Good job. All right, in everything, give thanks. Many, and here's the deal, many non-believers pray, if I could just tag off of this to transition into this gratitude. Many non-believers pray and ask God for things without being in relationship with God. And when that's happening, it's sort of like, hey, God, I want some stuff, but I don't want you. 
God, I want some things. A lot of times it's material things. God, I want this to happen, you know, or comfort or whatever. God, I want this, but I'm not putting my faith in you. I'm not accepting Christ. I'm not obligating myself to feel like I need to follow you for the rest of my life. I'm not praying in relationship. I'm just asking you for stuff because I believe you exist. What you're doing there is you're recognizing God but you're refusing to honor him or thank him or be in relationship with him. Actually, Paul speaks to this dynamic in, in a famous passage in Romans chapter 1. He says it this way. We've, we've been over this a lot, actually, in the last few years. But it says, even though they knew God, talking about, and this applies to our culture so fittingly. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Yeah, they knew about God. They might have even believed in God, but they didn't honor him as God, and they didn't give thanks because we all owe God thanks. And so the opposite of gratitude is ingratitude, but I think culturally maybe a better way for us to understand ingratitude might be sort of the attitude opposite of the attitude of gratitude is the attitude of entitlement. It's, I'm not grateful for what, whatever it is. I, I should get this, so I don't have to be grateful because I'm entitled to it. That's the opposite attitude that a Christian should have. And we can have this attitude in our family, at our workplace, at school, in church, politically. I mean, there, it, it can fit anywhere. We have this attitude of, I'm entitled to something. It's the opposite of gratitude. And we are called to give thanks in all circumstances. The weird thing about gratitude is it's one of those traits that keeps showing up over the years in psychological studies, if you follow that kind of thing. For example, repeatedly, over and over, psychological research says this trait of gratitude is one of the primary, if not the number one, most of the studies, it's the number one thing that leads to people having well-being. So they study people, and the people who, who are doing well always have this trait, typically, more than any other trait, of gratitude. Here, and, and so if that sounds new to you, well, the Bible's been telling us stuff like this for 2,000 years. And, and why not? If anyone should be grateful, if anyone should be thankful, it, it's a believer. Because to even be a believer, it starts with the premise that we have done wrong, we have sinned against our Creator. And because He's just, we will be punished for our sin. And that's the right thing that should happen in a just universe. And ultimately, this universe will be a just universe. And so as a believer, we first of all know that we don't deserve anything from God. And there's nothing we can do to help ourselves. To be a true believer, you have to know there's no good things that I can do that erases any of my wrongs. Because the good things that I'm supposed to do the good things, that's what I'm already supposed to do. That's just, that's, that just puts me on an even plane. I'm not doing bad. 
I'm doing good. I can't erase anything. And so the good news, what we call the gospel, is that God loves us even in spite of our sin, and he allowed his son Jesus to come to earth and take on human flesh, live a perfect life for 33 years, and then voluntarily allow himself to be killed, tortured to death by his own creation. That's what Jesus did. And in doing that and in paying that incredible, infinitely costly cost, in doing that, God now offers us forgiveness and relationship and righteousness. But we can only receive that on his terms, which is through faith. It's in relationship, through faith, um, through belief, kind of like faith, you know, faith, belief, or trusting in Christ, however you want to say that. But it's when we put our, our heart into it, when we put our heart, understanding who Jesus is, the Son of God, and what he did for us, and understand that. So when we put our faith in Christ, we know that's sincere because it comes with a desire to follow him. We mess that up all the time, but it comes, true faith comes with a desire to follow him. And so if that's how, and that's, that's the only way to become a Christian, but if, if that's how we became believers, and it's the only way, well, then we should be the most grateful people on earth. Why? God has given us every blessing, and we don't deserve any of them. Zero. Zilch. And so we have gratitude for every good thing in our life. Primarily, that's Jesus, what he did. The spirit who lives inside of us. God who instructs us. The spirit who helps us to understand it. Christ who died, bled for us as our king. That produces gratitude. God's the author of every good thing. James 1.17 says it this way, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. So the question for us practically is, do you routinely thank God? Because this should be continuous for us as believers. We be, should be thanking God in everything. And remember, we have Paul as a model. I had mentioned him earlier. Paul, the guy writing this, hey, be thankful, be thankful in everything. Give thanks. Remember, he's the same guy who received 39 lashes, or 40 minus 1, they called it, because 40 could be a death sentence. So 39 lashes, like Christ did before his crucifixion. You know, Paul went through that five times. And he says, always be thankful. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned once, and I'm not talking about him smoking something or anything like that. He was stoned with rocks one time. He was shipwrecked. He spent 
you know, a day and a night in the open sea. If you can imagine that, that's, that's his head bobbing up and down on the Mediterranean for a full day and night. He had enemies everywhere, people trying to kill him. They had just tried to kill him in Thessalonica. And he's saying, in everything, give thanks. Always thankful, model that. So the triad of God's will, can we put it all together? The trilogy of God's will is first, then, and last, yeah, in everything give thanks. Kind of throws you off, you got that little in there, in everything give thanks. Good job. Okay, so now, that's what we should always do, every believer, all the time. Now, Paul's going to tell us what we should not do. Okay, so now we have the don'ts, what we should never do. And that picks up in verse 19. I'll read it again for you. It says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So he starts off with, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit in our lives or do not quench the Spirit corporately when we're together as we all have the Spirit. He's instructing us, do not drown out or dampen the Spirit's work. That's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit is described to us as a fire living in every believer, dwelling in all of our hearts. That's the Spirit of God inside of us. We quench the Spirit or we grieve the Spirit when we are not following God, when we suppress what He wants in our lives. That's how we quench or grieve the Spirit. And so we do this when we follow after sin in our lives or we make those choices that we know is against God, it takes us away from God, all these things have a suppressing impact on the Spirit inside of our lives. We're saying, don't quench the Spirit, he's telling us. And then he gives us an example, just one example, because we could quench the Spirit in a lot of different ways. And so he's saying, hey, here's one way that we do that. And that is this, do not despise prophetic utterances. Do not despise prophetic utterances, or in some translations it'll say prophecies. Basically, what, if you want to really get this down simply, it's do not ignore or invalidate God's message is basically what he's saying. But to unpack it a little more deeply, prophetic utterances is God speaking to us. They were direct communication from God to the people in the Old Testament through Old Testament prophets. So God was using people to, to say, you tell people. Now, they had a lot of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. I, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books, but they didn't have access to that. So God made prophets, and then prophets was says, hey, God told me to tell you this. Now, that can be really dangerous 
Because all through history and all through the Bible, people said they were speaking for God when they weren't speaking for God. And so how do you know? Well, then God said, well, here's how you know. If a prophet says 99 things that are right and then gets it wrong one time, stone the prophet. Kill him. Kill him right there. Because he's saying he's speaking for God. And he's not speaking for God because God's not 99% right. God is always 100% right. High standard. Now, today, when we talk about prophetic utterances, that's God's word for us. That's just, here's what God has said to us. We have it. God has miraculously made it avail- preserved it and made it available to us. Number one selling book in the entire world in all places in the world. And so we have God's word. But here's what happens, and maybe you've experienced this. Sometimes somebody may come up to you and say, God told me to tell you. Has that ever happened to anybody? So that's happened to me a few times, not as much as you might think. But, you know, God told me to tell you. When somebody says that to me, I'm just like, yeah, boy. Because <laughs> the first thing I'm thinking is, okay, well, if you're a believer, you have the Spirit. If I'm a believer, I have the Spirit. Why didn't God tell me? So why did God tell you to tell me? I understand why that happened in the Old Testament, but that's a pretty high standard. I don't think you want that standard applied to your life. But why? Well, you know. And then the second thing is, but okay, When they tell you, then God told me to tell you, and then whatever that follows after that, although I'm already going, "Eh." but anyway, then you hear the rest of it. Well, then what what do we all do? Well, we take that and we compare it to God's word to see if that's legitimate or not. I mean, that's what we all should be doing because God has not left this so subjective we can find out the answer right here. And then he continues, he says, but examine, that's why he's saying this in the text, but examine everything carefully and hold on to what's good. Well, how do we examine or how do we test it? The word. It's the word. So we should examine, test what's being said, especially if it's being said in the name of God, to see if it's consistent with what God has revealed to all of us is what we need to remember. But he's saying, it's a little deeper than that, he's saying, examine everything carefully. Okay, well, the context here, primarily this is anybody speaking for God. Okay, we get that. Prophetic utterances. But he's saying, examine everything carefully. And I think that reminds us that we need to be examining everything all the stuff that's coming into our lives, all the things that we're listening to, all the worldview that comes into us, what what we're hearing at work or at school or from our culture, all that stuff, examine everything carefully, hold fast to what's good. And so this kind of ties back to the counsel that we give each other. Hey, we should examine everything, hold on to the good. It ties back to that, but it's beyond that. 
carefully see that everything that we're intaking, that we're listening to, does it line up with God's word? And we know this because here in the next letter to the Thessalonica church, Paul's confronting a false teaching. Some people have said the day of the Lord has already come. We, we, are, we already talked about this a few months ago. But remember, he wrote and said, that's not right. That's a prophetic utterance that is false, is what he was saying. Not everything that is said to be from the Spirit is from the Spirit, is what Paul is teaching them here, and he does it in his next letter to them. And so we've got to look at all these things, all this stuff that's coming in, especially if they're saying, hey, this is what God says. We need to look at that, examine that very closely. But in a more general way, once we've done that, it's everything that kind of comes into our lives. And so after the testing of it, the examination, then we hold on to the what is good, what God's word teaches us is good. And then if it's not, we get into this that we should get rid of it and abstain from every kind of evil. Abstain, stay away from, keep away from every kind of evil, whether it's a twisting of God's word or God's utterances, stay away from that. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that's even more uh, easily seen as totally contrary to what God has to say. Stay away from that. Stay away from doing the things that God doesn't want us to do. That's what he's telling us. Keep away from every type of evil. So here at Grace, as just a New Testament church, we're trying to help every single person with us in our church family. Those who have crossed the line of faith, and then some of you are sitting here, and you've really never made this decision to follow Christ. We want to help you grow closer and closer to God. Become a believer, that's the first step. And then once you become a believer, become closer and closer to God. We want to help you honor the Spirit, fan into flame the Spirit by understanding and following Jesus, understanding and applying God's truth to your life, and staying away from the things that pull you away from that. Because all things that are bad, all those things ultimately are destructive to our lives. They, they don't look that way, but all evil things are. And so we want to help you rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. We want to help you to do that. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we end a message, and, and they're going to come out and, and uh, sing us out a little bit, but, and, and, and sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll sit there and we'll think, man, I'm falling short. Man, I need to ratchet this up. And that's healthy for all of us. Yeah, I need to ratchet. That's what Fight Club is all about for men. We're going to ratchet this up. But also, rather than leave, like, you know, maybe God's working on our heart that we should change some things, that's valid. You should listen to that. If that's God's word that's changing you, that's the spirit working in your heart through God's word, illuminating in your mind what God's saying. But also, rather than leave bummed out, 
we should leave rejoicing. Because no matter what we've done yesterday, tomorrow is coming. We've got the rest of the day today. And we can rejoice in him. We can follow him. We can yield to the spirit in our life. That's what God wants for us. That's God. That's God through his spirit infusing joy into us. Let's walk out that way. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God, we thank you. And our hearts are full of gratitude when we say that. We thank you for everything that you have done for us as believers. And God, we ask of you that those here who are not believers, that your spirit would would tug on their heart, that you would pull them in to relationship with you. And as they have questions or or need more understanding, Father, we pray that you would give them the strength to, to see that through and help us to be a resource to them. But Father, for the rest of us who are saved by grace, and didn't deserve it. God, let us live in thanksgiving. Let us want to talk to you continuously and help us to rejoice always because that's what you want for our lives in Christ's name.